0: Good afternoon, welcome to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. It's another episode of Biodiversity for Malaysia on Earth Matters, our ongoing series which wants to get everyone on the same page when it comes to biodiversity matters, all the issues surrounding the Convention on Biological Diversity, the post-2020 framework process that is, the 30 by 30 target and more. So we know that currently about 17% of terrestrial and 8% of marine areas are under some form of protection, but that in many cases, the effect of their protected status is in doubt. So this means that this new 30 by 30 target that we keep talking about, which is to protect 30% of Earth's land and sea by 2030, represents a significant commitment. But where are we, you know, when it comes to the talks about this right now? Joining me are Julian Hyde, the general manager of Reef Check Malaysia, and Elvin Chelia, the senior program manager of Reef Check Malaysia, to give us a status update. Welcome, gentlemen. How are you today?
1: Good. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Glad
0: to be here. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. So, yes, um, you know, we started this series this series a few months ago, you know, talking about the 30 by 30 target. Maybe let's, you know, let's just uh, go back to the basics. Let's just explain that one more time. Can you give us uh, a brief update on this 30 by 30 issue? Uh, you know, some of the things that we've spoken about before. Yeah, let's just do a quick uh, rundown of those things.
1: Mm, OK, so the 2011 to 20 was the UN decade on biodiversity. And We had the Aichi targets as part of that, which uh, which required or asked nations to save to, to protect 10% of them in their marine estate. Since then, uh, we've entered a new decade, and a new type set of targets is currently being negotiated so the post-2020 global biodiversity framework. Uh, it too has a whole bunch of targets uh, covering a very wide range of issues, but target three speaks about protecting 30% of land and marine areas by the year 2030. It's it's a preliminary draft, or sorry, an initial draft, uh, and there are issues surrounding define global target. Does that mean that it's 30% of the globe's oceans, uh, and in which case Malaysia might actually not have any obligations? Because the other, the developed nations have protected 30% of the world's ocean. So, so where does that leave us? Uh, the other key question is 30% of what does it mean of Malaysia's entire economic zone, EEZ, mm-hmm. uh, which stretches 200 nautical miles out from the coastline, which is a huge area. And, and, you know, there's not much in the way of ecosystems there. So there's those two things which we've been trying to seek clarity on for a few months now. And I think... Actually, in the last few weeks, uh, you, we were just talking about the conference last week, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people talking about it, a lot of people trying to understand what these terms mean. And it seems as though perhaps we've got closer towards some clarity um, and we, we might define the the, the global target of 30 percent as, as an aspiration. Right. Mm-hmm. This is 30 percent is scientifically sound. Uh, scientists will, will say that 30% or even 50% or even 70% in some cases are good targets for conserving percentages of ecosystems to ensure their survival in the future. Let's start let's start at 30%. So the target is scientifically valid. Okay. Um but we don't really just, do we really want to protect 30% of our EEZ when there when there isn't all that much there. So let's call the 30% a global aspiration. And Malaysia will do what it needs to, and what it can to contribute towards that target. Mm -hmm. So we're now in a situation where we can say, okay, 30% of what? How about 30% of our coastal ecosystems? Um, How about 30% of where these important valuable assets are that give us these various uh, uh, ecosystem services that we'll rely on? So that makes it a much more realistic target. It makes it much more visible and much more achievable, I think. Um, and it brings us towards other areas in which Reef Check Malaysia has been working, mainly connectivity between different eco- ecosystems. But even more importantly, where Alvin's more involved is in looking at how we better manage those very coastal ecosystems that we're saying we need to protect.
0: Mm-hmm. And Alvin, you're, of course, you know, heading up the E Tioman program, right, uh, for Reef Check Malaysia. So you want to just tell our listeners a little bit about that?
2: So the Chindai Tioman program was uh, initially started off to build resilience, both ecological resilience and social resilience as well. So we wanted to look at what are the local factors that are impacting the reefs and the community on the island and try to find solutions to these problems. Yeah? So for example, uh, the local stresses to the reef would be things like um, trash, like Bad tourism practices, things along those lines, and with the local community, it was uh, whether they were unskilled, you know, whether there was lacking certain training that they required to get uh, better jobs or to be involved in uh, management and decision making on the island. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, all right. So I just want to talk. Uh, go back to that thirty by thirty, right? So I guess you know it seems clear that the problem with this target is a lack of clarity, right? That's what uh, Julian, you were saying. Um, yes. Well so you know what is your view on it then you know what what does this global 30 by 30 target mean thirty percent of what exactly?
1: Well I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble with colleagues uh, when I say something like a lot of the, the the sea off the east coast of Peninsular Malaysia is a kind of a sandy plain at 40 50 60 meters. Um, there isn't mm-hmm. a lot of a lot there in terms of habitat coral mm-hmm. reefs and so on. Uh, yes, there are fisheries out there, right? But that becomes a fisheries management issue rather than a habitat management history, uh, uh, issue, an uh, ecosystems management issue. So I'm kind of making an argument that instead of focusing on that massive area out there and saying, let's save 30% of our EEZ, where not really sure how much there is, when we know for a fact that there's a lot of reef, a lot of seagrass beds, a lot of mangroves. Uh, in the coastal zone, which are not currently protected. Uh, Dr. Faiz at uh, I-U-U-N, I beg your pardon, is currently doing some work on these these uncharted reefs off the Pahang. Now, if you look at a, a chart of the coast mm-hmm. off the Pahang, you'll see there's all these shallow areas. They're, they're named as shoals. This likely there's coral reefs there. Maybe we should start looking in these areas before we go further offshore and into deeper water and say, what is close by? And if there are shallow reefs, then the local communities are going to be using those as fishing grounds, which strengthens the need to protect them and conserve them so that the fishing fishery is maintained. So is this, yeah, the 30%, like I said, the the closest I can come to it is that it is a a kind of a global aspiration. Saving 30% of ecosystems is a great idea, but I do not translate that into saving 30% or protecting 30% of our our whole economic zone. Let's go and find out what's there and then protect 30% of that or even 50% or even 70%, which when we look at these much smaller areas, maybe that becomes possible. So we build strength into the science as well. Mm -hmm.
0: And... Um, You know, we had some talks in Geneva. Uh, We we spoke about that also a couple of months ago or so. Uh, There wasn't much progress there as we discussed. Um, You want to just remind us, you know, what happened in Geneva and, you know, what subsequently is going to happen following those talks, which, yeah, weren't quite conclusive.
1: What happened in Geneva was lots of late-into-the-night meetings um, which, which were seeking this very clarification we're talking about. If I recall the original draft of Target 3, uh, started off at I think three lines of text and by the end of the meetings in Geneva it was something like 30 lines of text as as nations uh, use their prerogative to say I want to put that piece of text in brackets and in the CBD process that means something it means that I disagree with that and we need to change the wording so it just got longer and longer and it turned out to be a whole paragraph so I, I think that that that's that doesn't tell me that nations are disagreeing with each other. That tells me that there, again, this word clarity, there's lack of clarity, people are not sure what it means. Um, I think from Malaysia's position, there was a strong feeling that signing up for this target would would, would sign us up and, and uh, require us to protect 30% of our marine areas. And understandably, there was reluctance in the ministries. You know, I, I wouldn't want to sign up for that ter- target. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think it's realistic for Malaysia to achieve that. I don't think it's necessary to achieve it. That's why I'm arguing for this this idea that let's look at where the coastal ecosystems are. So that was the output of Geneva. And because of the lack of conclusion there, there is another round of talks planned uh, for late June mm-hmm. in Nairobi. So it's another round of the, the the working groups where they're going to try to unpack all of these issues and say, what exactly does it mean Um I've had various meetings with uh, with, with people, with various stakeholders in the last few weeks, including one of the leading proponents of the 30 by 30 campaign. Okay. And they have said to me that, look, 30% is a global target, and like I said, aspiration. Mm-hmm. We're not asking individual nations to protect 30% of their ecosystems, uh, EEZ. So I think that clarity is emerging and fingers crossed you know in nairobi this idea can become more clarified sorry for repeating myself but it can become even clearer and we can perhaps reach a final version of the target and before we move on let's not forget target 3 is but one of the targets
0: mm.
1: you know there are multiplicity of targets and other targets require similar negotiations uh like one of the targets i think target 1 says we will, we will we will restore 20% of our damaged ecosystems well my question would be Number one, where are those ecosystems? And two, where are the damage bits so that we can work out what the 20% is? So there are issues with some of the other targets as well. Mm-hmm.
0: And I guess, you know, some of these targets seem a bit arbitrary. And, and like, yeah, how do we define it? Isn't it how do we come to some sort of conclusive um, um, actual action? I remember in the last interview, you said we should have, you know, been doing this ages ago. We need action now. <laughs> where is all of that actually, you know, happening?
1: Yeah, the international community just takes some time to become mobilised. <laughs> okay. And I, I, I don't mind mean that in a critical way. Mm. It's just when you have three people around the table, you can reach agreement quite quickly. When you've got 150, oh, it's a bit more complex. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And, you know, days just to come up with a paragraph, right? But okay, let's not let's not talk about that. <laughs> let's just go for one quick break. Let's come back and talk about a recent uh, uh, event that happened in Kota Kinabalu. I'm speaking today to Julian Hyde. He's the General Manager of Reef Check Malaysia and Elvin Chalia. He's the Senior Program Manager at Reef Check Malaysia as well. It's another episode of Biodiversity for Malaysia. We're keeping you up to date on everything you need to know about the Convention on Biological Diversity, the post Twenty. 2020 framework process the 30 by 30 target and more we'll have more after this quick break you're listening to earth matters on the bigger picture bfm 89.9 Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on the Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. It's our monthly episode of Biodiversity for Malaysia, our ongoing series which wants to get everyone on the same page when it comes to everything biodiversity, the issues surrounding the Convention on Biological Diversity post 2020 framework process, the 30 by 30 target, and more. Joining me to do that are Julian Hyde and Elvin Chelya. They're both from Brief Check Malaysia. Julian is the general manager, Elvin is a senior program manager. Uh, thank you again, gentlemen, for joining me today. So before the break, you know, we were talking about all these sorts of of um, uh, issues about what is 30% and all of that. And I understand, Julian, you were recently at the Asia Parks Congress in Kota Kinabalu. I think that was at the end of May. And uh, some of those questions were also discussed there. Before we get to the discussion, maybe you can just tell us what that meeting was about. Um, and yeah, was there much interest in looking beyond the 30% number?
1: Yeah, um, the Congress is um, a, it's a periodic meeting of people involved in managing protected areas. Um so it was a great opportunity to meet some of the people uh, behind the scenes, as it were. You know, one reads publications by individuals and then you have a chance to meet them at, w- at one of these things. So uh, it was a great networking opportunity, if nothing else. But it also was an opportunity for people to to get together and discuss these very same issues. So there was a lot of talk about 30 by 30. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of talk about governance issues. Uh, governance is talking about you move away from management. The management is the day-to-day function of patrolling and enforcement and conservation activities, but there's much more emphasis being put on the on the on the idea of governance now. Um governance is is defined really as the decision-making process. Who makes the decisions and who's involved in that and how transparent is it? And there are there are growing calls to make governance more transparent, which again is, is what Alvin's working on. The other thing that was much discussed, uh, very interesting, was, was what's called IPLCs, which is uh, indigenous people and local communities. Um, and there is also increasing moves to have them have a, play a bigger role in conservation because they are seen as the natural custodians of the land. Um, and they are seen as having the greatest interest in seeing it conserved. They're also the ones that know most about it in many cases. Mm-hmm. So there were those two big issues that came through very clearly from the conference for me. It was governance and the role of local communities. And that is exactly what we're trying to do on on Tierman, which is to address those two issues.
0: Mm-hmm. Does it bring some... Um issues into play, I suppose, you know, when talking about the role of IPLCs, when talking about governance, uh, yeah, what are the issues that come up when we talk about those things?
1: From the Malaysian perspective, um, our governance is very much top-down, mm-hmm. and so the key issue, and I'll let Alvin talk about this, he knows way more about it than I do, but the key issue becomes how do you involve all of these other stakeholders and sure. make governance more transparent and more widespread and more equitable, and um, There are things you can do, there are systems and standards in place, uh, particularly one called the IUCN Green List, Mm -hmm. which is what Alvin's working on, on uh, Pulau And uh,
0: yeah, can you talk to us a little bit, Alvin, about the IUCN Green List um, of protected and conserved areas? I mean, maybe you can explain what it's all about first and how that's uh, coming to play in Teoman.
2: Okay, so the Green List is basically a certification, you know, to say that this location it is working towards improving conservation outcomes by ensuring uh, management and governance are fair, just, and equitable, uh, as well as participatory. So it's basically, it's for sites that are already uh, protected areas, it can be land or even marine, but to say that the way it is being protected and managed is what we we want, you know, it's involving the the different stakeholders listening to them and getting them involved. Okay.
0: And I know that, you know, you guys at ReefChat you're strong proponents of co-management as a strategy, right, for marine conservation, especially within uh, marine protected areas or uh, MPAs, right? Um, what would a system of co-management actually look like?
2: Um, so basically, like what Julian mentioned earlier, right now what we often see is a top-down management approach where, Um, the rules, the decisions, everything is set and decided by the government. Mm -hmm. And it is just enforced on the ground. Uh, And the people that actually live within this marine protected areas or uh, national parks, whatever, they have to just follow and listen to what has been told. Uh, But with co-management, what we are trying to do is we're trying to get both parties to meet at the middle. Yeah. So we want to get feedback from the local communities. You want to know what they think is necessary and important uh, for the islands, the locations they are based at, and then try to relate that to the way the, the protected area is managed. Um, so you can say it's kind of like we're working towards building a kind of platform where we can get feedback from the locals, yeah? Uh, then how this feedback is used in decision-making and then how it is then fed back to the local community, you know, for the governments to go back and say like, hey, we heard you, we heard that this is what you want, this is what you need. Therefore, we have decided to do things differently now and we hope, you know, this works out. And if it, if it's uh, if you think this is the way it's, it should be in the, in the future, then let's keep going that way. Uh, but yeah, that kind of a system, some kind of um, a platform, I would say. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Okay,
0: but of course, um, there are challenges, I suppose, right? When it comes to this sort of participatory management, uh, what are some of the issues or challenges with establishing something like this?
2: I would say the first thing is trying to identify what are the roles that the local stakeholders are going to play. Yeah, because uh, you know they have only certain training, certain background, so uh, we need to we need to be able to identify and say like, right, these are the roles where we can get the local communities involved in management. And then uh, try to find out what are the factors that are limiting them uh, or limiting the roles that they could play in management. So if it's something that is simple, then they could, maybe they just need additional training, you know, Mm. some kinds of skills training, some kinds of guidance. Uh, The other big problem would be, uh, when it comes to different jurisdiction so certain times like for example the marine protected areas in peninsular malaysia it's protected under federal government but everything that's happening on land is under state government so it's getting the different agencies the different government bodies to uh, work together towards a shared goal you know so if the national go- if the the federal government has this um, Targets, right? National targets, but are the state governments working towards those same targets? If they are not, then you're going to have a problem with getting the different stakeholders uh, working towards that that one goal in one direction. So that's a, a, a quite a big issue that we face, uh, uh, often times.
0: Uh, that famous federal state split. Yeah, we hear it so often uh, happening, uh, such a hold up in so many discussions. Um, and of course, the local communities play an important role, right? Um, The thing is, um, as we as we discuss all of this, we are losing our biodiversity. There are real impacts being felt. And I think especially following COVID, right? I mean, that was really such a wake up call, you know, so many lessons from there. Maybe you want to talk to us a little bit about that, you know, how, yeah, some of the lessons that we've learned from, you know, this, this these years of, I suppose, uh, inaction or, or not quick enough action?
2: I think the COVID pandemic and the lockdowns kind of highlighted how important it is to involve the local communities that are on the ground in conservation efforts. Because, uh, for example, on Tioman Island, where we had a whole team of islanders who were already trained to do a lot of the uh, activities, you know, things like coast net removals or the monitoring of uh, the coral health and things like that. It was not as badly affected as other locations where people depended on external help, you know, because people couldn't get to the island. There was restrictions with crossing state boundaries and things like that. Whereas on the on Fioman, because the locals were involved, a lot of the work was able to be carried out. You know, as long as they allowed us to dive, uh, we could go out and do do what needed to be done. So it, it kind of highlighted how important it was to actually work with the people that are on the ground because they are the ones that are going to be there, right? Mm -hmm. And again, in looking at things uh, at a long-term view as well, if we are training the islanders, the indigenous people and the local communities, then you know that it's sowing into the long-term plans for that island because they are going to be living there. It's them and their children and their grandchildren. But if we just focus on working with people who are not from the island or not from these locations, they are eventually going to move on, you know, and you're going to find yourself keep just retraining and retraining and people coming in and moving out. So there's not much, uh, it, it's not very sustainable if you look at it uh, in that terms as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Julian, anything you wanted to add to that?
1: Um, first of all, let's remember that our data shows that reef health improved during COVID right um so that's quite obviously i think the reduction in numbers of tourists yeah. but also let's just remember that that also means that the locals were not you know destroying the reefs they were actually part of the protection of the reefs so no tourists yeah, health reef health improves but the locals could have taken the opportunity to go and fish all of the fish off because there's not the sharpening patrols but they didn't they still continue to look after it so yeah. with, it just shows that with the locals involved in management things can still work out um, I think the other thing I wanted to mention was this recent uh, story from Perhentian where uh, you know poor sewage treatment is apparently making people sick. That's been in the media in the last few days. Um, you know, if you're going to invest in large-scale sewage treatment on an island, you need the community to buy into that because it's it's a big disruption. It's a big cost if the households have to pay for it. So it's another reason for involving the locals. The resorts are, 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 are many resorts are locally owned. The shops are nuclear, people live on the island. All of these people need to be brought into the conversation when you're doing something like a big infrastructure project like that. And Parentian just shows us how necessary it is that we do that soon. Mm-hmm.
0: You know the other thing that I wanted to go back to was the federal-state split, right? So yeah, okay, I was very flippant about it just now, but it is a huge issue, right? I mean, what what can what can we do actually, you know, to to bridge those gaps, to 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 stop this inaction? Because you know they just you know we sort of just say ah oh, okay, federal state, what to do? But there must be some sort of solutions uh, with regard to that, right? I mean, what would you think are some things that we can start working towards when it comes to these issues, jurisdiction, I suppose? Yeah,
1: I think. Um Alvin can talk about what, what we can do on the ground to involve more local stakeholders in that conversation about conservation. But I think there is a number of issues. Let, let's talk about sharks. They don't just live on Tiamen. They travel long distances. Turtles travel long distances. Whale sharks, they all travel long distances. Dolphins, they don't understand state borders. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our biological connectivity off the East Coast goes all the way from Johor in the South up to Prenti in the North or, or vice versa, the flows are both ways. So it crosses three or four states, um, and we need to bear that in mind when we're talking about these transboundary issues—not transnational boundaries, but trans-state boundaries. So maybe we need to look at it like the Great Barrier Reef Management Authority does, and have regional committees at state level, and integrate, involve them all in this conversation. and Say, look, that is one protected area off the east, off the east coast. It needs a big, supranational, super state body to manage it. Mm-hmm. And states need to be represented in that, as do the major lo- local municipalities. So I can see a, a Tringanu state uh, management organization that that, that liaises with Quintan State organization, Pahang State and Johor State. But in, within that, within within uh, Pahang, they'll have a, a sub-office at Kwantan and maybe a sub-office down in the south and a sub-office over the north. So you're getting a lot more involvement of people in uh, both the coastal and the offshore uh, conservation issues. Um so I think we need a fundamental rethink about what structures we use to manage our marine resources.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Alvin and I were talking about an oceans policy earlier on. You know, we don't have an oceans policy. There's no overall policy and integration of policy on these different, many, many different issues. Transportation, tourism, you've got resource extraction, you've got coastal development, all with a different agency in charge and, and nobody's really talking to each other. Yeah. So maybe the idea of an oceans policy, for example, would be allow us to integrate all of that together more easily. Alvin, on the island, you're you're talking about how how would you involve
2: the state on the island? So, you know, like what Julian mentioned earlier, national ocean policy. That is something that is very good because it would focus people on a set of like approved goals, objective, governing principles. You know, things that um, are approved and agreed upon. Uh, by different stakeholders. So that would at least guide people along a a proper track. Whereas now, everyone, I mean, deep down state, federal, they all want the best for the places they are managing and governing, right? But sometimes it's just everyone working on their own, working in silos, not understanding what the other party is trying to achieve. So if we had something like this, a policy to guide everyone, it would make it easier, yeah? It would also, uh, for us, what we see... On the ground, it's it's just getting people to talk to each other. It's getting the different agencies, people from state, from federal, uh, even within federal, the different agencies or within state, like tourism, talking to environment, you know, getting them around the table and discussing and saying like, hey, where are we going with this? What is the objective? What are we trying to achieve? And what are the best ways to go about doing it? And it's interesting because uh, we've been, you know, talking to the different agencies, and sometimes uh, it is quite obvious that there isn't as much uh, as as much communication going back and forth within them, uh, between them, as you would imagine. So um, that is uh, something that is very important. Something that we are trying to push for on the ground. And when it does happen, it works very nicely. I'll give you a good example: is uh, when we have issues with oil washing up on the island. Yeah. And sometimes it's like tar balls. And um, in the past, there was a lot of confusion on like whose jurisdiction was it, who is supposed to clean it, who is supposed to dispose of it. And uh, we were able to sit together with the people from Jabatan Laot, from the Department of Fisheries, from the Department of Environment, the local town council. And we were able to set like, all right, this is the issue that happens. This is what needs to be done. Uh, These are the people who have manpower on the ground. These are the people who have expertise on how to dispose of it or deal with it. And since that, we, we since we all sat together and had that meeting, every time there is an incident with oil washing up, it gets dealt with very quickly, you know. And the problem is addressed and taken care of instead of people just saying, "Oh, these people are not doing their job; that people are not doing their job," and then the problem not being solved. So yeah, getting people around and talking to each other, finding solutions. Okay, amazing. Amazing, right?
0: <laughs> Such a complicated process, apparently. But I guess, you know, maybe just to sort of like bring it all together, right? What happens if we don't have these uh, sorts of conversations? What happens when we have this lack of, you know, clarity and discussions? I mean, we are already seeing the impact. You know, as we spoke about in the last episode, Julian, biodiversity loss is our loss. Uh, maybe you just want to expand on that, you know, as we conclude today's uh, session.
1: Um the uh, region of Pahang has just recently been in the news the last day or two, talking about the destruction of mm-hmm.
2: Um
1: and I, I think that's a, a good example of it's almost like in despair. You know, the region of Pahang has to stand up and do this because we're not doing it well enough ourselves. We all we all know. Particularly, people in our field and people in government should also know how important biodiversity is. You know, there's there's plenty of stuff in the media about it. David Attenborough's been talking about it for about 40 years, but you know, we're we're getting better at the conversations, and we we have to we have to recognise it, and we have to take steps. We we simply have to buckle down and do it. And Alvin's example of the the committee on the island that decides the or the, getting the people around to say, what do we do about oil spills? Okay, great, this works. Now, what are we going to do about Overfishing? What are we going to do about blast fishing? What are we going to do about sewage pollution? What are we going to do about all of these things? And it takes everybody who's involved to have that conversation. We're always complaining about silo thinking and these guys do this on their own, these guys do this on their own. It's a reality. Alvin has proved that you can overcome that by by insisting and and cajoling and persuading people to sit around a table because you go to the source. Okay, Uh DOE, what is your role? Where's your legislation? Where's your policies? Where does it say what your role is? Okay, that's them. We've got JKR, we've got these guys, we've got these guys. And Alvin was able to put that together and take that jigsaw and put it together and say, these are the people who are involved. This is all of their roles. Let's agree that we're going to do this. Now all we have to do is do that for all of the other issues that we've got on the islands. But it's possible.
0: Did they train you for that in uh, when you were doing marine biology, Alvin? I'm not sure. <laughs>
1: having is largely <laughs> self-taught. That's
2: <laughs> yeah, quite a shock. <laughs>
0: uh, simple conversa- uh, conversations, conversations on conservation, as you guys you have go. your series as well. Um, yeah. yeah, and of course, you know, as you know, when we spoke to Effendi and, and Gillian last uh, last month as well, you know, uh, real life impacts of biodiversity loss, you know, it comes to food security and our food sources yes. being impacted, which is a huge issue that we're facing now as well, isn't it? Yep. So yes. lots at stake. Um, I mean, well, just to conclude, uh, gentlemen, you know, Alvin, you are, of course, working in Theoman. I mean, if anyone's interested to to find out, uh, you know, more about the program or the work that you're doing, what's the best way that they can do that? Or, you know, can they get in touch with you?
2: Yep, they can get in touch with us uh, directly. Um, you know, you can find our emails on the Reef Check website, uh, but they can also follow us on our social media. We've got a uh, Cintai Theoman Facebook and Instagram page where we update what's happening on the island and how people can get involved.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, gentlemen, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Julian Hyde, General Manager of Reef Check Malaysia, and Alvin Chalia, Senior Program Manager of Reef Check Malaysia. We were talking about biodiversity for Malaysia, again, part of our ongoing series. If you miss any part of our interview, you can always download the podcast at bfm.my earth, or you can find it on the BFM app. And again, of course, if you'd like to find out more about Reef Check, just head to reefcheck.org.my or follow them on their social media channels. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9.